It's a delight to be here today with Bruce Ecker. And uh, as a just a brief introduction of Bruce Ecker, I would like to say that there have been several people from the channel who have asked me to get in touch with Bruce. Um, Bruce is an MA and he is a licensed psychotherapist. He's co-director of the Coherence Psychology Institute and also co-creator of Coherence Therapy and co-author of Unlocking the Emotional Brain and also Depth-Oriented Brief Therapy. And as I understand it, Bruce, the, the co-creator and co-author and all that, the, the other person in that pair, I think is your wife, is that correct? Uh, for Coherence Therapy, yes, Laurel, okay. Holly, and I. Uh, uh, we're, yes, she, we're, we're, we're married and... Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> But we've been, you know, professional colleagues all along too, and we, to, to, together, uh, put to, uh, developed and began teaching and articulating this this distinctive approach that we finally called coherence therapy. Uh, initially, we called it depth oriented brief therapy, uh, and then changed the name in two thousand five to coherence therapy for various reasons. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes, it's been a, a well, collaborative process of evolution yes you were brought to my attention by by a couple of guys who have been um looking at your work listening to your videos reading your books and so they know a lot more than i do because i have not had an opportunity to read your book but i have watched some of your videos and been very interested in what you're doing and uh to, to maybe just jump start it i will throw out this terminology that you've used that you are looking at creating a distinction between what's called extinction therapy and erasure or maybe not therapy maybe that's not the right word but between extinction of of uh, psychotherapeutic problems and erasure of them would that be a correct way to say it that is one way to characterize okay. it, and it's 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 accurate as far as it goes, but it might not give people the most lucid understanding. Right, so because, it, I mean, if I just listen to it right off the top, then extinction sounds pretty similar to erasure, right? But they, they operate so. in two different ways, correct? Fundamentally different ways. And what, as you just indicated, what most people don't recognize, it's not self-evident, that nearly 100 years of memory and learning research uh, carried out hundreds of, probably thousands, let's say thousands of laboratory studies of what's called extinction, which is where you first create some type of learning in either animals or people. And the most interesting and relevant to therapy uh, of these are em emotional learnings, where there's a significant emotional component in the learning. Pavlovian conditioning is the classic laboratory paradigm for studying this stuff. And most people have heard of that. Um, you know, if, if, if a mouse gets a foot shock right at the end of a, of a 30 second tone, audio tone, and that happens three or four times, then the next day when the mouse hears that tone, the mouse freezes a clear, behavioral and physiological expression of threat memory, fear memory, fear generating threat memory. So that's an emotional learning, right? And it was established 
throughout most of the 20th century, in fact, the entire 20th century, that when you carry out extinction of that learning, in other words, uh, you then uh, play the audio tone with no shock. The mouse will freeze, but then you play it again with no shock. Probably the second time the mouse will freeze too. But if you do that 10, 12, 16 times, no shock, that's a, uh, you, you might think that is driving the unlearning Mm -hmm. of the original emotional learning, but it isn't. Extinction experiments showed all of those thousands of times that the original emotional learning remains intact and the extinction training sets up a separate parallel emotional memory of the tone being safe or, or a non-issue. And both are there. And the original fear memory or threat memory is easy to reactivate and it'll dominate again. So extinction only temporarily suppresses the target emotional learning. And well, I noticed one of the words that you used is that these emotional memories are very tenacious. Yes, that's it. Right? That's it. And by the and there was a, a one of the better known extinction uh, research studies in a journal article was called indelibility of subcortical emotional memory. Subcortical meaning not the cortex, but the, mm -hmm. you know, the hippocampus, the amygdala, the, 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 the stuff that's not in awareness directly uh, in our learning and memory. So the researchers, after all those decades of study, had formed the conclusion that emotional learnings are indelible for a lifetime, that, they're, the, that the brain had no way to really fundamentally unlearn them and eliminate them from the memory system until the year 2000. Actually, it was 1997 to 2000. There was a cluster of, of studies done that stumbled upon, and in 2000 is the one that's usually considered decisive, uh, discovered that an emotional learning can be uh, eliminated from... Can, can, I, I don't want to get into too much of the technicalities right. of memory science here, uh -huh. bore people. But when an emotional learning is put into long-term memory, um, the synapses that encode and, and store that piece of learning mm -hmm. uh, uh, achieve a special, stable, tenacious, long-term state that will last a lifetime unless this other process happens. It turns out the brain is equipped with its own innate process that can unlock those specially locked stable synaptic connections and allow the memory to be fundamentally unlearned and nullified. We can say erased, and, and, and quite a few of the articles by neuroscientists in these research journals do use the term erased, but that using that term with a psychotherapy audience starts to get troubled responses. People get very uncomfortable with the idea of erasing memory. Turns out that it doesn't erase your conscious memory of events that you experienced. It erases the emotional meaning that you originally put together. So that the very same cues or context no longer trigger the emotional expectations and reactions. But you remember what you experienced and what you went through and that you used to react that way. So it doesn't take away our autobiographical 
memory, mm-hmm. right? Well, so let's so erase. Not- so, I, so I tend to not use the word erase, more like uh-huh. nullifying the originally learned emotional meaning or response. Okay. So, but before we get to the key to unlocking this, this nullifying, this nullification of the emotional memory, um, let's step back just a bit to coherence therapy, because there, as I understand it, I mean, the very interesting part of that to me is that these emotional learnings are not um, just some random um, problematic thing that people gin up on their own, but they're actually very coherent response to the activity that has happened in your life. And one of the examples that you used in the, I believe it was the Italian interview that you did, was of a woman who um, had become a manager in her job and was subsequently extremely anxious all the time about um, just the the whole business of managing other people. She started having full strength panic attacks at work right after she was promoted to being a manager. And, and, you know, if you were working an, an older version of therapy, you might spend years trying to determine where that was coming from and find ways of overcoming it with different kinds of cognitive behavior therapy or replacement activities that a person could do. Or teaching relaxation them. techniques yes. or thought stopping or whatever you do to counteract, right? Right. But, but in that case, you, you were able to uncover a deep emotional learning that caused her to have that anxiety that was so completely unexpected. Yes. Right. And yes. Um, that a typical therapy would have never been able to deal with that. So maybe you could tell that story. I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I'll try and make it as succinct and focused as I can. Um, yeah. As You know, there's a one-sentence definition of the entire methodology of coherence therapy that I'll put first because I think that'll be an orienting context here. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like haiku for coherence therapy. (laughs) It is simply this. Find the underlying emotional learning that is generating the client's unwanted pattern or symptoms and then guide the profound unlearning of that specific emotional learning using the memory reconsolidation process. So the first phase is find the underlying emotional learning. So as we go into that discovery work in coherence therapy, we're not trying to interpret it or diagnose it or or assume that it should be uh, theoretically inferable from the presenting problem or symptom, not at all. People are too complex. Each person has a unique emotional learning history. Nobody is smart enough to do that. So we don't even try. We've developed a methodology that makes the eliciting, the bringing out of what's actually there happen in the room. The client experiences it. The therapist learns it from the client. It's the literal pulling into conscious awareness of what has been operating from outside of awareness. And it's not buried, 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 taking years to get to as uh, old school Freudians might have been assuming. It's in the room. It's in the room. And if you reach for it in the, you know, one of the metaphors we've used is a lock is very hard to open. It'll stay locked forever. But actually when you have the right key, it opens easily. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've learned how to find the right key. 
And uh, while I can't get into describing our techniques and all the skills that are involved in doing that in just a few sessions, I'll jump to the bottom line of what she and I found was operating. Um, all through childhood, her mother had uh, really truly severe uh, heart and health problems. She was very fragile. And this woman, as a girl, virtually on a daily basis, received high anxiety messages, signals, words and face and tone of voice from both father and mother. Don't cause, don't cause mother any distress. Don't, don't upset her. She, she could die. She could die. You know, and the girl saw health crises, emergency health crises happen at times. So this was very vivid. Well, what this woman was completely unaware of until we elicited it, brought it into awareness, is that as a girl, she, what's the word, interpreted, construed, she took all those urgent warnings to mean that she herself is somehow lethal. As you know, you wouldn't think you wouldn't think a child would interpret it that way. But once I say it, I think you can see how a child might oh, interpret yeah, absolutely. it that way. Because yeah. because a child begins to feel like they're yes. I mean, a child automatically feels like they're the center of the universe. That's right. Right. That's right. And so, so if you're continually told, if you do this, it's going to cause this other thing then that begins to feel like well i'm the mechanism then that's right i have that dark lethal have that power. power right that's yeah. it that's what she learned and boy she learned it very deeply and thoroughly and had no awareness of carrying that model of herself mm -hmm. isn't that amazing we form these learnings these mental models or schemas as we call them also mm -hmm. um, that are life organizing massively life-constraining and life-organizing with no awareness of that material. But we brought but it into... Completely, they're completely objectively sensible. I mean, you can understand right. how the child came up with that. That's right. And that's what we mean by coherence. Yeah. The model of symptom production in coherence therapy is what we call symptom coherence. It means it makes sense. What seems so irrational from the outside uh, or, 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 or maladaptive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the inside emotional truth is adaptive and coherent and fully makes sense, but you have to find it. Mm -hmm. And we found it took several sessions. Her, her process of discovery was a little more elusive than many. Um, but we found it in just a few sessions. And, and so now that we know now, see that made sense of her panic attacks at work. How? Her, what we also discovered is that part and parcel of that emotional learning is her solution to that problem. Each schema, each symptom generating schema has a problem defining section, which is some suffering that's urgent to avoid that exists. The, the person learns that the, the particular suffering or disaster exists. And the schema also has a section that is how to try to avoid it urgently. And what she learned for avoiding it is to keep herself blurry and uh, unassertive and non-impinging. Just right. That, that doesn't that make sense of how to keep from killing mom? 
Mm. Don't say or do anything that's specific and direct and like expressing what you want or being upset or just be a blur, be invisible. Mm -hmm. Don't impinge on anybody or on mom. But uh, what the emotional learning system does as we grow up, it generalizes. It doesn't know that this was just mom. It general well, she learned a model that she has a lethal force. So of course this would apply in any situation. Again, outside of awareness mm -hmm. completely. So uh she had this crucial strategy to keep herself from killing anybody of just being an, an unexpressive, invisible blur of a person. And that had worked all her life until she was promoted to be a manager. Because what does a manager do? A manager <laughs> makes decisions that directly affect other people. She had never been in that position before. So her new job definition and responsibility at work had eliminated her crucial safety tactic and was forcing her to directly impinge on other people. And she was literally going into full strength panic attacks, physiological, heart beating, sweating, thinking she's having a heart attack. Uh, that's the degree of terror that this unleashed. It shows the, the power and depth and vividness of the original emotional learning. And, then, and that shows the coherence of the panic attacks uh, as well. Well, then, with that all having become clear, my next uh, task or step of coherence therapy is to guide the, the unlearning of that, the profound unlearning, uh, through the memory reconsolidation process. And let's see how to put that as succinctly as I can. I, 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 I wrote the emotional truth of her original emotional learning. I am a lethal presence. I could kill mom if I don't muffle myself, something like that, on an index card for her. Nowadays, we email them. It used to be in person, and uh, we, I'd actually write and hand over an index card to the client. Um, and uh, she spoke with her mom on the phone every week. So I, uh, as a between-session task, I invited her to have that index card in front of her as she's talking to mom. Just to be with now. And this, I, I was viewing this as a step of what we call integration, following the discovery work. So this would just be a, a, an experiential practice of, of building this awareness of what she had learned into very conscious status, right? Mm -hmm. So she's conscious, she's looking at the card as she's talking to mom so that she's very conscious of this emotional truth in relation to mom as she has never been in her life. It's been operating from behind uh, awareness, creating the behavior of invisibility and the tension, the anxiety of that situation mm -hmm. of interacting with mom. But now she's explicitly conscious that this is what she knows. And you could say believes about herself, but listen, these things don't feel like belief to, to these people, to, mm -hmm. to any people who have emotional learnings, and we all do. It feels like reality, right? Right. Yeah. It feels it's like the trip. given solid reality of the universe. That's how these things feel until they poof. 
until they are disconfirmed. And then the person realizes, oh, I made that up. Which is a mystery in itself that we might get into here, but uh, it's remarkable how the mind has the power to create these emotional realities that do feel like the solid truth of, of existence. But in the moments of unlearning, true unlearning, not just extinction counteracting, the mind wakes up to the, the real reality is, oh, that's not how the world is. I made that up. And it seemed real until now. So I had her uh, be gazing at the card with this truth of what she learned about herself as she's talking to mom. And in her next session, she reports what happened as a result of that. She said, uh, well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I can remember her exact words now. It's been a while since I reread the original write-up of this thing <clears throat> in detail. But the gist of it was, I saw that I was being gentle and kind and safe, and mom was reacting to simple things with the old message of, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. That's too upsetting. And I could see that I didn't say or do anything actually upsetting or harmful. This was mom's invention. And that just started to turn the lights on about the whole thing. And we then, in sessions, the next couple of sessions, reviewed her childhood experience, revisited scenes in childhood where she could now see the same thing. And the credibility of the original interpretation, I'm lethal, uh, just started to drain out of that schema until, you know, I, I think we did another telephone talk with mom, uh, keep just keeping that process going. And her recognition that she never did anything lethal, there was nothing lethal about her, it was all coming from them, rather recklessly, became more and more the obvious truth. And uh, her, her model of herself as a lethal presence was truly disconfirmed. It, it lost its realness. Mm -hmm. I would ask her to try and go back into the original strength of that belief. And she'd not only say, I, I, I can't gin it up, you know, uh, like you, that phrase you used earlier, yeah. you know, it's, it's such a good phrase. I, it, it's not there to feel real. In fact, it seems so absurd now. And we hear that from people. They use words like absurd. Some people burst out in a gleeful laughter at the very prospect of seeing the reality in that old way. Hmm. Um, and her panic attacks, uh, attacks uh, stopped fully, fully stopped and never, never returned. And um, some like six or eight months later, she sent a letter to me. I'll never forget how it started. She said, you know, I can tell that it won't be long before I can't even remember responding the old way uh, in relation to people or at my job. So b before it, it it's just gone completely, I just want to say what a big change it made. Even my signature has changed. And uh, a, a woman friend asked me if I'd had some face work done. <laughs> That's how the physiological change of the body, she was holding that tension in her musculature her whole life. 
Mm-hmm. And it releases somatically. People feel this when these emotional learnings uh, become fully disconfirmed and no longer uh, you know, rule the person's experience. Well, that's so interesting that you talk about it somatically because I, for many years, I have worked with a guy who ha- has devised a program that he calls reposturing dynamics. So he works with people's bodies to um, help them through through stretching and and body work to help them develop the kind of posture that is self-enhancing. Once your posture is proper and your body is stretched out, then you will maintain the proper posture just naturally. It's not something that you have to focus on or or any of those things. And so, but but he finds things working almost exactly the same thing that you're talking about, but he's starting somatically then these tensions that have long resided in the body because of emotional issues, when they're, when the body is released, it also releases all these emotional traumas yeah. come to the surface. Yes. And, and I can remember times of him working on me where, where he would get some fascia released or something. And then I would just respond with laughter. Other times yes. my response yes, would it. be just deep, deep sobbing. Yes. Where's that coming from? You know, there's yes. Isn't that mysterious when that unlocks? Right. Yes. I've had similar experiences in body work. Yeah. 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 You can, you can, you can approach these schemas and unlock them and, and release them uh, from many different angles. The mind and the brain are so complex, have so many dimensions Mm -hmm. that the avenue of approach is there are many avenues of approach and different therapy systems use them Mm -hmm. and body work can be very powerful. We have, uh, I think, two different case studies of the process unfolding through body work. One of the things I found so interesting that you were talking about earlier is that there are many different therapeutic approaches, but this place that you've discovered of memory reconsolidation that can happen through any of these other, you, you can kind of use that as a place to connect up all of the different therapies, right? Yes. And that's a major aspect of our, of our work and our writing and presentations. Yes. It's, this is a very unifying framework for the psychotherapy field and the psychotherapy field is in dire need of a unifying framework. It's so fragmented into hundreds of different therapies and it's fragmented because, believe it or not, until now, with memory reconsolidation, the field has developed without any knowledge of an internal mechanism of change. Isn't that amazing? Uh, mechanisms of change have been proposed by many therapists and and therapy theorists and by many exponents of various systems. But what they really are describing is uh, a procedure, some type of procedure, whether it's uh, in, you know steps of cognitive restructuring or uh, emotional release or, or whatever. But these, these are not actually internal mechanisms. The question has remained, well, why does change happen when you do that? What is the internal mechanism that's being recruited and uh, actuated when you do the external procedure that you're calling mechanism, which technically is not mechanism. That external procedure technically is a mediator 
of some mechanism that's been unknown until now. Memory reconsolidation is the first scientific, uh, well-documented uh, through controlled studies, internal mechanism that produces change in memory and emotional learnings in particular. Are well, and you, you distinguish that as transformational change. Yes, because right. when you fully unlearn and nullify a specific emotional learning, it's not there anymore to reactivate. And the symptoms it was generating reduced to zero. That's 100%, like the panic attacks of the woman I was describing. Her panic attacks fully disappeared and never came back. That's 100% elimination. That is a world of a difference from the standard of effectiveness that's been operating in the therapy field until now. Uh, the standard of effectiveness is about a 20 to 25% reduction of symptoms that is still susceptible to relapse. Mm -hmm. uh, because that much change is what has characterized the, the hundreds of different randomized controlled trials that have been the main approach of psychotherapy outcome research all along, where you have many therapists, see many clients, uh, and you compare two or more different types of therapy in that way, along with a control case where people are getting uh, placebo therapy or just sitting on a waiting list while the other therapies are carried out. These studies, uh, and it's one of the great mysteries of the therapy field that I think now gets solved by understanding how memory reconsolidation works. It's been a great mystery why all these different studies have all shown the same level of effectiveness for all 15 or 16 different therapies that they've been carried out for over the decades, going back to, I think, the first one in 1937. Uh, it's called the dodo bird effect uh, from the Alice in Wonderland story, like uh -huh. all win and all must have prizes, the, the dodo bird shouts mm. after uh, holding a race, right? All win, all must have, well, all therapies win. They all have the same effectiveness measured in these randomized controlled trials, which is a very modest level of effectiveness. Um, typically, you know, one standard deviation improvement in uh, the statistics of a, of a symptom strength. That's corresponds to about a 20 to 25% reduction of uh, symptoms. That's not a, that's not a very strong therapeutic effect, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, memory reconsolidation allows true unlearning that has a 100% effect. And that's a revolutionary change for the uh, therapy field. We think that the current knowledge of memory reconsolidation uh, uh, starts to be a, a to starts to allow transformational change of this kind to become the standard of effectiveness. And what we've done is to closely examine previously published cases from uh, a number of different psychotherapy systems, well-known, well widely practiced psychotherapy systems, cases in which the result was transformational change. Unambiguously, the initially presented problem pattern or symptom is completely gone, and that's well-documented, and it lasts over time, okay? So we pick cases that have achieved that change and cases that 
cases in which the the therapeutic process, the the client therapist interaction, is documented in detail, so we can look uh, across the uh, the therapy sessions and examine for whether the critical sequence of experiences that we know carries out this memory reconsolidation profound unlearning happened prior to the appearance of the, or prior to the disappearance of the symptoms, right? There's a very distinct set of experiences that the brain requires in order to unlearn a specific emotional learning through the memory reconsolidation process. So this is a wonderful setup in that you've got distinct required experiences that do this. And by the way, in all of neuroscience, there's no other brain process or mechanism that is known to unlearn and eliminate an emotional learning. So you've got this distinct set of experiences that does this, and you've got this very distinct, strong outcome or result of 100% elimination of both the symptoms and the emotional reaction, like uh, the, 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 the woman I described had symptoms of panic attack, right? Physiological stuff, throbbing, headache, uh, sweating, right? Mm-hmm. Plus the internal emotional activation of terror. So all of that goes to zero and no other mechanism is known to be able to do that. You, so you've got these distinct experiences that can do that. You've got the res, distinct result and you've got timing. They're close, you know, the one follows the other promptly. Mm-hmm. So when you can demonstrate all that in a previously published case, uh, across many different types of therapy, many different types of symptoms, uh, you're you're building quite a strong case, we think, for the universality uh, of this memory reconsolidation process operating in many different therapies that don't describe the process of change this way. They all have their own, you know, theoretical model mm-hmm. and and methodology pattern that they follow, and they're quite different. And yet, through this lens, it's almost like, you know, we've actually had some therapists we've trained get back to us and say, I I, I now feel like I have a kind of x-ray vision because I can look at cases from any type of therapy and I can see this process through the techniques, right? These very different techniques across different therapies tend to be what you see and think of as the mechanism of change. But when you understand this memory reconsolidation process, you can see that process being facilitated through the techniques on the surface level. And we've created an extensive demonstration of this happening across therapy systems in order to show the the, uh, power of this whole framework for unifying the therapy field. Well, so a couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one, it seems like in many um, domains of knowledge, like in, in your case, it would be psychotherapy, that there would be people who would be very threatened by that idea, that someone has actually come up with something that's better and more effective. And um, so I'm wondering how your ideas have been received in the field. And do you feel like um, do you feel like it's well received, or do you feel like there are people that feel threatened? And 
it's a mischievous question, and, and the <laughs> and the answer is is complex um, because all of the above happens. Um, here, okay, let's start with um, ther therapy systems that we have shown in our book and articles do carry out this process, and that's why they accomplish transformational change in our view. Uh, I think they are largely appreciative. Um, we have had feedback from many different, um, well, both from the founders of some major therapy systems. I'm not going to name names here, okay? But uh, 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 as well as from leading trainers and teachers of various prominent therapy systems, you can hardly go to a major training of any major therapy system where they don't mention memory reconsolidation now. It has become taken very seriously. Its unifying power is now widely recognized. Well, that's that's great to hear. Oh, it is. It is. And and I'm I'm happy to hear that uh, in many cases we get feedback that our book is cited in trainings of various therapy systems. Uh and and uh, it's now as if showing that your therapy system does carry out this process is a status. Well, not just by status, I mean credibility is, is an mm -hmm. increase of credibility for your system at this point. So we've, we have some degree of success in contributing this to the field and uh, uh, converging toward uh, a unified shared framework. Um, that said, not all psychotherapy systems are equally uh, equally bring about this process with equal frequency. And there's really a spectrum, uh, as I conceive of it. Uh, on one end of the spectrum are therapy systems whose methodology does tend to carry out this process, even though they don't describe it in the way we do within their own framework. Mm -hmm. uh, quite consistently and, and reliably. So those are what we think of as therapies of transformational change, and they're very happy with our framework as a rule. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, however, are therapies that rely heavily on what we mentioned earlier in this conversation as uh, techniques that, that, that counteract the problem pattern. In other words, they focus on trying to build up the preferred state of mind or behavior without going deep into what's there in emotional learning that's generating the unwanted patterns. So they're essentially doing what extinction has done all along. They're not the same procedure as extinction, but in a, in a broader sense, they are doing the same kind of strategy as extinction. They are simply um, trying to build up a, a preferred or a symptom-free state through a competing uh, emotional learning that has to be practiced over and over and over many, many times to make it strong enough to, to be chosen and to happen instead of the problem pattern, which is still there and still has its roots in some uh, emotional learning outside of awareness, 
So it can still be triggered by life and, and life will re-trigger it sooner or later. So these counteractive therapies are not in a good position to carry out this process. It sometimes happens by luck or coincidence that the process happens to happen. Um, but these are therapies that very seldom, rarely, if ever, manage to create transformational change. And I think, you know, um, exponents and practitioners of these therapies uh, are the ones who may feel threatened uh, and uh, uh, competitive with our framework. Yeah. Well, so what the, can you the other, do, you know? Yeah. 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 The other thing that came to my mind when you were talking is, and maybe to explain this, I have to tell you a little bit about our little corner of the internet, which is a, a name that was given to this loose conglomeration of channels like mine, some much larger than mine, but you know, and then there's a few smaller ones like mine that all kind of got started in the wake of the influence of Jordan Peterson about five years ago. You familiar with Jordan Peterson? Sorry, no, I'm not. Okay. Well, he's a, um, he was a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and also a clinical psychologist. And he had uh, written a book back in the late uh, 90s. I think it was published in the maybe mid 90s, but he'd been working on it for like 15 years. And the name of the book was Maps of Meaning. Mm. And he's laying out a worldview in this book, um, trying to address what he, he didn't call it the meaning crisis. Later, uh, another um cognitive scientist by the name of John Berbeke came along and identified what he calls the meaning crisis of kind of the proliferation of nihilism and, and depression and anxiety that's going on in the world mm -hmm. today. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, Jordan Peterson um, sort of came onto the world scene through a variety of reasons about five years ago. And he had already put out a lot of material because he had um, taped all of his lectures, his psychology lectures at the University of Toronto. So hundreds of hours of lectures on psychology. And he has a very particular way of looking at the world. And, um, and then also years and years of, of clinical psychology, working with clients. And, and so he had all that experience. And I became very interested in his work about five years ago. And then I sort of stumbled upon a lot of other people that were interested in his work. And many of us have been doing channels, kind of following the thread of what he has been about. And um, so it's way too much to corral into a little hole like this. But, like a quite yeah. a large framework. Yeah. Very large framework. But but anyway, what popped into my head when you were talking about this transformational change is, I don't know if you've ever heard this term red pill, the red pill, uh, like when a person no. has one particular political framework in their mind, and then all of a sudden they sort of grok a particular truth, and then that just evaporates that old political framework, and then they're in a completely new political framework. That's it, the process happened right there. Yeah. This confirmation. Right. So an it, old model of reality was in awareness alongside a different model 
that reveals the falseness of the first one. Yes. And well, it's I mean, not about, one it's of not the problems with... It's not just intellectual convincing. It's, yes. it's a, a, a felt sense of what's real gets totally changed. Yeah. Yeah. There's sure. a danger when you're talking about political ideology perspectives because you could jump from one to the other and still end up in something that's incomplete and kind yeah. of locks you into a framework that is also a not not a particularly healthy framework to be in. But but it's that disconfirmation that I've seen right. happen with people right. and yeah. uh, in um it can go both ways. A person can go from left to right or from right to left. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, this idea of being red pilled. So we use that terminology sometimes to talk about what has happened to some people from listening to Jordan Peterson's lectures. He, he did a lot of these psychology lectures on his uh, website for his college classes, but then he also maybe four years ago, and this is going to sound very strange to you because he, he, he's not a Christian, but he decided he was going to do a series of lectures on the book of Genesis. And he rented out a hall in Toronto and charged people money to come because he had to pay for the rent of the hall. He wasn't making any money on it at the time, just covering his expenses. And several thousand people would come every week to listen to him do a three-hour lecture on the book of Genesis, <laughs> just like out of the blue. But he's looking at Genesis as a psychological story, looking at it strictly from a psychological perspective. What can we learn about who people are and how they think if we look at these stories in Genesis? So he put out 15 of these lectures and each of them is three hours long. So there's 45 hours of this stuff. Wow. And so I started listening to this like five years ago or something. And I am a Christian and I've learned a lot of things through my faith over the 40 years I've been a Christian. And I noticed that the things he's talking about in this lecture series is like, well, yeah, I mean, God taught me that back in 1984 through this experience that I had. Or, yes, 1991, I have this notation in my Bible about that thing that he's talking about here. And so I began to see all these uh, connections. And I'm thinking, this is all very interesting. And then also, I'm an artist. And so my whole art framework just laid right over on top of the framework he was using for this mm. psychological patterning of the maps of meaning. And I'm beginning to think this is very interesting. You know, So that's when I started my channel to kind of explore why are these things all lining up this way? Mm. Through the process, I've met a lot of uh, people. One of the women that I've talked to several times is a, a a licensed psychotherapist in Canada. And she found that by taking Jordan Peterson's books and writing them kind of like little simplified handbook primers, that if she gives those to her clients, that the kind of transformation that would ordinarily have taken several years of working with a person happens in like a month. Mm -hmm. And she's seeing these people just completely have all these negative frameworks disconfirmed. And it's like the truth just lays over on top and they're yes. like transformed. 
it sounds like she has a, uh, a, a lucid recognition of the process. See, this, yeah. this process is, is, is the brain's process. It's not theoretical. It doesn't come from some theoretical construct of, of psychology or psychotherapy uh -huh. or personality. It's there. Anybody who pays close attention to the brain's own process of unlearning will uh, recognize and develop a facility for, for bringing about this process. And that's why we see it in so many different systems of therapy. Well, okay, so and we this... see it happen in daily life without therapy as well. So it crops up all over the place. And I love what you're telling me because I love seeing how it becomes apparent to people from so many different angles. Well, see, you just popped out that word love because that is so important to what we've been talking about here too. And I'm going to introduce you to several people's names here and, you know, whether, whether you are interested in following them up or not, it will help people who are listening to us kind of connect things up. Okay. Um, Esther Meek is a, a philosopher who has written a book called Loving to Know. Hmm. And then she wrote a follow-up nice book. That is, isn't it great? Yeah, she wrote a follow-up book. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the follow-up book. Very similar name. But the, the idea is that we, it isn't that knowledge precedes um, love, but love precedes knowledge. That, that knowledge um, comes to us as a gift of love. And that when we are willing to receive that gift of love, then we get that knowledge. And well, that, it certainly takes open-mindedness and receptivity. You cannot yeah, so, force somebody to engage in this process. That's right. So, so here's Esther Meek with her covenantal love idea. And then there's another uh, cognitive neuroscientist, uh, physician. I think he's also a psychiatrist by the name of Ian McGilchrist. Oh, yes. Him I've heard of. He's, yes. okay. he's had, yeah. So he talks about the left and right hemispheres exactly. of the brain and that yes. the right hemisphere, he says there's mostly overlap between what the two are doing, but that there are some things that only the right hemisphere can do. And one of those things is to bring in the outside to that the left hemisphere operates on what the brain already has going on internally right focused right so the right hemisphere is bringing in the outside and that okay. for that the right hemisphere has in a sense this loving gaze on the world a very open posture very exploratory and willing to receive new things and then well, that, uh, not in everybody uh no 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 this is this is the ideal this is okay ideal. okay so this is the the function, the, the ideal function of the right hemisphere when yes. it's allowed to do what it can That's do. That's exactly right. Okay. When, it, when it's not being, apparently a lot of what happens between the left and the right hemisphere is inhibitory behavior. Mm -hmm. The right hemisphere is trying to inhibit the left and the left hemisphere is trying to inhibit the right for re, you know, reasons, good reasons. There's purpose in all that. But his theory is that over thousands of years that the left hemisphere particularly i would think in different periods of history gains ascendance and becomes too powerful and that we're in one of those periods right now where the left hemisphere the scientific 
viewpoint where um, everything is coming from the outside, you know, that you can, you can look at things like they're in a box and you can analyze them and you can figure it all out scientifically as, as uh, discerned from scientifically, there's a difference between scientism and science. Oh, yes, right. So what, oh, yes. what you're, what you're doing with your observations of what happens in a person's life and then keeping track of all these different techniques and looking at which ones have this impact and which ones don't have this impact. That's science. You're looking at empirical truth and you're analyzing things. But for some, if someone came in and just said, no, it's this way because of that theory, and we're just going to nail that box there, right? That yes. is more the scientism idea. Yes. And and he is um he's written two books now. The first, The Master and His Emissary. I've read like three times, which yeah. I thought was an amazing book, but his second one, The Matter with Things, is uh, 1,700 pages long or something. <laughs> so I have not read that, but I haven't read the whole thing. But one of the things that he says in this book, I, I read his chapter on value. And uh, one of the things he says that, I'm just going to quote this, and I, I might have to backfill it a little bit. Whatever intimations of goodness and badness it received, the left, whatever intimations of goodness and badness that the left hemisphere receives from the right hemisphere, it turns into rep representations that it can both control and measure. And it substitutes for the complexity of reality a series of cause and effect mechanisms. And what that sounded like to me was that in the case of of the lady who believed that she was lethal, that her left hemisphere had looked at the complexity of the reality that the right hemisphere was experiencing in terms of this emotional relationship with the mother and what the mother and father were demanding of her to hold herself back and everything. That emotional reality is very complex and it's a very complex story. But the left hemisphere simplifies it all down and says, yes. right? No, no, no. Yes. It's a cause and effect mechanism. You're the cause and the effect will be your yes. mother's death. And therefore you are a lethal uh, tool, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what we mean by construing. Yeah, we, we're not aware of creating from, from that whole richness of all possible uh, meanings and uh uh, aspects of what's actually going on, the mind selects a particular mo model, a mental model that is a very narrowing down mm -hmm. of that totality and locks onto that as, as reality and then experiences it as reality, not just, oh, I made this up, I'm going to use this to make sense. No, it, it feels like the external reality mm -hmm. uh, at that point. So yeah, exactly as you're describing it. Right. Well, yeah, I think you you probably would enjoy this book by uh, Ian McGilchrist, but it's very long. <laughs> yeah, I'm and, not uh, sure I can handle 1,700 pages and yeah. entering into the piles of books I'm already eager to read and can't get to. Yeah, but but I yeah, I've heard of his work all along and how important it is for uh, brain science.
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things he's talking about when he talks about love, he quotes Nietzsche here. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to read this just for my listeners, because I think this is really something. Nietzsche says emphatically that one must learn to love. And he compares it to achieving an understanding of a piece of music. At first, with the piece of music, you must learn to hear the figure and the melody in the music and be open to it and attend to it as a life in itself. Then you need effort and goodwill to tolerate it because sometimes it gets difficult, right? <laughs> so, and it, or in spite of its strangeness, to be patient with its appearance and expression and kind-hearted about its oddity. Now that reminded me of art because when I'm painting, a painting always comes to a stage, what we call kind of the ugly adolescent stage where you just get angry at the painting and you want to throw it out because things aren't working. It's too complicated. And, and, uh, but, but as an artist, what you need to do is look at the painting and say, I love you painting. I'm not going to give up on you just the way you would with your teenage kid. Right. You say, yes. I love you. I'm not going to give up. Yes. On yes. Yeah. And he says, so Nietzsche goes on to say, only thus do we come to a point of becoming its humble and enraptured lovers. But this is what happens to us, mm-hmm. not only in music. This is how we have learned to love all things that we now love. In the end, we're always rewarded for our goodwill, our patience, fair-minded, and gentleness with what is strange. Gradually, it sheds its veil and turns out to be a new and indescribable beauty. That is its thanks for our hospitality. Mm. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. beautiful Nietzsche, Nietzsche, there's another facet of Nietzsche. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Nietzsche's... uh, emphasizing uh the, the the latin phrase amor fati love your fate oh, love your no, fate that's nietzsche and it to me it's so profound and has tremendous resonance with our coherence framework uh because to love your fate no matter what's happening is to be open in that way that you were describing the left hemisphere tends not to be Mm-hmm. To be open to the to the, the the learning, the evolution, the transformation that comes even through suffering, even through situations that are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but to stay open and loving of uh, boy, it sounds trivial and glib the way I'm saying it. I know not uh, at all. No, see, Jordan, I don't know how to Jordan capture P- this. Well, Jordan Nietzsche, Peterson would say that that yeah. To come to the place of being able to say that being is good. And and when he said that, that just went off like a light bulb for me because Mm. years ago, my brother was killed in a plane accident Mm. when he was 40 years old. And I had to come to grips with that. And the only way that I could deal with that after six months of struggle and suffering was to come to the conclusion that God is good. Regardless of what happens, no matter what kind of suffering that there happens, if I can trust that God is good, that gives me a lens through which to see the world that changes mm-hmm. everything. Yes. Well, you have you have a spiritual framework on it and a belief in God that um, <clears throat> obviously is precious and deep and useful for you. Mm-hmm. In my therapy work, I am not free to 
reach for that with right you know, but clients but in idea, general but, but it's but, exactly the same idea as being as good and love your yes faith, it is it is i do think so and i'm going to tell you the the form in which i use that principle in a non-religious mm-hmm. way with clients it just happened again a week or two ago with someone uh and often the way it happens is the client is struggling not just with their personal difficulty, but with the meaning level, which is, why would this happen to me? You know, the world seems cruel. Sometimes people have a, a crisis of faith in God. Mm-hmm. If, if, if for some people that it, it it brings that also, but apart from that, just you know, how how do I make sense of a world that would put me through this? Yeah, you know, it often happens. For example, uh, with clients who were very intensely abused through their childhood in various ways by their parents and family and have believed that they deserved it. And that's why it happened. Talk about uh, making sense in a certain way, construing, which children usually do. They usually believe this is happening because I deserve it. I mean, I'm, I'm unlovable. I'm worthless. I'm bad. What's wrong with me? Well, the therapeutic process for people who have that material necessarily has to bring them out of that. And there's no way to get out of that without recognizing I didn't deserve it. That was done to me, even though I was a lovable, perfectly acceptable child. I didn't deserve it. And that opens up not only a grief process, but a crisis of meaning for some people. Why would, now that they recognize that this was severe, massive mistreatment Mm -hmm. and not just ordinary life that any parent would have done because I deserve it. Why would the world let this happen to me? That's a very, it's a crisis of meaning often develops. Happened just a week ago with a client and I offered him what I usually offer. And again, it worked. So this is my secular version of what you are Mm -hmm. describing. Like what I say is, look, I don't know if this will connect for you. Um, I've seen it be useful for some people who are struggling in the way you are with why would such ordeals and abuse come onto you from the world? You could try viewing through the following lens that the meaning of an ordeal is the qualities of strength and character that you are forced to develop Mm -hmm. to meet and move through that ordeal, Mm -hmm. which you would never acquire and develop otherwise. And this has really released the dark, bitter view Mm -hmm. of every therapy client to whom I've offered that lens to approach it with and they quickly start to see the deep sense of that and 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 it's and that's a movement toward love your fate right because yeah, I, I really i really like i like the way you phrased that because yeah yeah one of the the things that got me interested in jordan peterson's book maps of meaning is chapter four of that book he talks about the concept of anomaly and he talks about anomaly at every scale, 
whether it's the anomaly of say mm -hmm. the Holocaust yeah. or the anomaly of um, uh, stumbling over a rock. Do you mean interpreting things as anomalies? Well, well, okay. His his interpretation of anomaly would be very very simply put that I'm here. I want to get there. So I I, I start on my path. Everything is working fine. Something comes into my path, some anomaly, some obstacle in my path. Obstacle, obstacle. Okay, some obstacle in my path. Let's say I fall over a rock. Now I'm on the path, but now I've got a broken leg. I can't get to where I want to go. And the whole world is in chaos around me because of this thing that happened, you know, or maybe my car breaks down on the freeway. Anything that can happen that keeps me from getting to where I'm going. Yes, and makes my world chaotic instead of orderly and sensible. Yes, okay. Okay, so the whole chapter is about this idea of anomaly. And as I was reading that chapter, I'm thinking, well, he's very close to my understanding of how the world works because my understanding is that every one of those anomalies is a gift that is specifically suited to what I need to learn and grow and to become the person okay. that I'm going to yeah. be. Yeah, good. Right? Now I see. That's the same yeah. idea as I was. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this reminds me of something I once heard from Robert Bly. You know Robert Bly? The, the, the name poet? is familiar, but yeah. oh, the poet, yeah. The poet, yeah. Um, I went to some workshops with him many years ago. Uh, and he said many useful, wise things. But the one that comes to mind here is, he offered a definition of maturity. There are so many definitions of maturity, you know, from many angles. But the one he offered, he said, an increase of maturity is an increase in the range of conditions you find workable. Hmm. Isn't that marvelous? Yes. And to me, it again is right in the zone we're talking about here. An increase in the range of conditions that range you that you experience conditions. as workable. So, you know, uh, when, when an, an anomaly or an obstacle suddenly crashes into your path and you got to go through some suffering to, to keep going where you want to go. Um, I think I think when we when we go around the block enough times in life. We learn not to take the next anomaly as mistreatment by life or bad luck or what's you know i'm being punished for something you know but okay all right i don't like this not about liking it mm -hmm. but this is gonna this is gonna there's a there's a hidden gift here yeah there's a hidden gift when, when I, once i'm on the other side of this once i have moved through this i'll then be in possession of the gift that this is bringing me even though there's this is a suffering but I'm guessing one of the things that you have to deal with as a therapist is that that answer can seem very glib to oh, somebody who, right? So yes. you have to you have to be there to listen Absolutely. and lovingly help a person come to that realization. Oh that yes, you can't just pop this on people. It would be glib and and would not work. Would go very badly. No, you, there has to be a, a lot of of, of uh, empathetic joining empathetic understanding of how awful this experience is the mm -hmm. suffering that it really is and uh 
and then when when the conditions seem perhaps suitable for me to offer the lens that I described a few minutes ago, then it's in that context. It's very respectful of, of how intense and real the suffering mm -hmm. actually is. Yep. You know. Well, I can tell that you have that love with your clients. I can tell. Mm, I mean, you. the instant thank that you. we started talking today, it felt like I've just known you for years. <laughs> oh, wow. How nice. Yeah. I mean, it really felt that way. Oh, um, so, thank you. so now thank I'm going to throw a few questions at you. Um, tell you a little bit about our corner and see what you think about these things. Um, so one of the things that you talked about is how the, these experiences to the person who's having them are coherent and meaningful, even if they are actually not reality, like the girl who thought she was lethal, that's not really what was happening. But for her, it was a coherent and meaningful experience and that it Given, give, no, it it proves to be coherent. It wasn't yeah. coherent to her when she first showed up for therapy. No, no, but no. But I mean, she, when she was a child, it it operated in her subconscious as something that was yes, coherent and useful totally, totally. as a, a protective mechanism. Let's say, yes, to keep her from damaging her mother, right? Yes, yes, okay. and and to protect her from her own lethality. Mm -hmm. Both it protects both the mother and herself from being guilty of doing this horrible damage. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I told you a little bit about John Verveke, who is this other cognitive neuroscientist. Um, he has been working on, he works in the, the area of cognitive science that's called 4E, where they talk about embedded knowledge, um, enacted knowledge. Can't think of all four cognition, ways of cognition. But he's developed his own framework that he calls the four Ps of knowing. So there's propositional knowing, and then there's procedural knowing, perspectival knowing, and participatory knowing. Mm -hmm. And that um, his perspective is part of the meaning crisis arises out of that we, almost everything nowadays is only propositional knowing up in the head, right? Up in the head. This is true. That's not true. And, and uh, everything has got to be very explicit. And, um, but that in actuality, participatory knowing, um, knowing things because we're in relationship with other people, yeah. It's, it's a living knowing. experience. It's a living experience, yes. that knowing. It's experiential right. knowing. And then the procedural knowing would be like tacit learning, like mm -hmm. uh, learning to ride a bicycle or learning how yes. to take care yes. of your rose bush. Yes, it's knowing kind of how without having a, 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 an intellectual knowing of how. You just, your whole body knows how. Right, and it stays yes. with you. Yes. So in some ways, these implicit emotional learnings probably connect up with these yes. things that are both participatory oh, yes. and procedural and yes yes they have a remember i i described a, a particular schema being knowledge of the suffering and knowledge of how to avoid that suffering the latter portion the knowing how to avoid it is procedural knowledge mm -hmm. so you can get a wrong knowledge of how to avoid suffering and that gets embedded as these erroneous emotional learnings 
Well, it depends on what coherent. you mean by wrong or erroneous. Well, okay, uh, I know they. I know they're coherent. But but given, yeah, given unhelpful. Her, let's say they're unhelpful at the end. <laughs> at the end, you mean yeah. later in life? Later yeah. in life, yeah. Yeah, right. They're they're terribly limiting. Right. Terribly limiting. But, but, but it know, is a kind of a procedural thing. You learn it within yes. the procedures of your life, within the That's experiences right. of your life, right? That's right. Yes. But then it seems like you're using propositional truths to undo these things. No. I, no? Okay. The, 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 the disconfirmation is not just intellectual propositional knowing. Nope. Okay. Okay. It's crucially, and we teach this very explicitly when we do our trainings. The, the, the contradictory knowledge that's going to come alongside the existing emotional learning and disconfirm it, that contradictory knowledge has to be experiential, participatory, experiential, uh, alive knowing, not just factual knowing. It has to feel absolutely unquestionably real to the person. Oh, okay. So... So the card that she's reading might be a proposition, but that no, no, no. proposition has to enter into her internal experience. In the order card that effective. she's reading was a wording uh -huh. of the original learning, which didn't exist in words to begin with. But by, by making it conscious, you see, in the discovery process, we get the client to be subjectively in the feeling of the original learning mm -hmm. and then to express it in words from being in it I it's see. like it's okay. like clothing an invisible uh -huh. reality with words that make the intellect now understands what is the felt knowing but putting words on it doesn't make it an intellectual knowing it's an experiential knowing so it'd be knowing. more like almost like poetry i am because... a lethal presence mm -hmm. if i myself just come out It'll, it could kill people. It could have killed mom. Mm -hmm. That's a that feels real. That is not a mm -hmm. proposition to her. Right. That's okay. why I said these don't feel like just beliefs. Uh huh. It feels like the living reality of existence until it's disconfirmed. So it's way deeper than just um, language. It's yes, more yes. like more like poetry or more like a an embedded story. It's a yes, it, it you know, it takes some it takes some pondering over time to to understand how the mind can learn and know very specific things as experiential knowing that has no representation in words or concepts or sentences. Mm -hmm. None. And yet it's very specific and very real feeling. That's a faculty of knowing. It, it certainly is participatory. It certainly is. What are the some of the other procedural? Procedural and perspectival. But um, it's we call it implicit knowing, right? In mm -hmm. the in the therapy field. And these are very well defined, specific knowings of what's real. It, because it feels real, mm -hmm. even though it turns out once it's disconfirmed. It wasn't real at all. It was a mirage. But it absolutely was real to the emotional learning and memory system. So it we must construe, be a tremendous we, challenge we, putting it into words for her, finding a way for you to corral that and 
put it into words. On well, a it's a tremendous challenge for somebody new to working this way. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't feel like a tremendous challenge to me anymore. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a unique and rich, marvelous adventure with each person. Because as I said, each person has a unique emotional learning history. Mm-hmm. But we have ways to make the specific emotional learning start to be felt in the whole mind and body. And, you know, just hover with that. Just hover with that. Your, your, your shoulders just tightened up when you pictured your brother walking into the room. Just, just hover with that. Just what comes next? What comes next? We just keep deepening slowly right there, not drifting away. And the, rec- the mind starts, the, 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 the part of the mind that does words and concepts is now paying attention to that stuff. It never did before. Mm-hmm. That specific stuff. And when it is guided to hover and pay attention to this emerging nonverbal stuff, it starts to find words that, that represent it adequately. Mm-hmm. And it like you know I'll, I'll I'll start to help the client. Is that does this phrase fit? Does this phrase fit? You know, but the mm-hmm. client has to be the one to say nope. That's a little off. People are amazingly fine tuned once the material starts to emerge. Fine tuned about what words represent it accurately and which don't. No, that's just a little off. And subtle changes of words go ah. Oh, that's it. That's it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a wonderful process. A very fascinating way to describe it because um, I have a similar experience when I'm painting as Mm. um, other people have when they're, Mm. say, writing a poem or writing Ah, a book. Wow. Where you're struggling to find the right stroke or the right word. You somehow know what the right one is. You know when you've got it. Yes. You know when you've got it. There's a subjective alignment and and red and truth. A truth is now accurately represented. Yes. 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 Isn't that? Oh, I love hearing about that in painting. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, and and it's because there is some there is some truth that you're striving to find. Yes. And that's, and that's in you already, and you're looking to find adequate representation of it. Yes. Yep. Isn't that wonderful? Yep. So the whole creative process. Um, and really, it makes sense for it to line up with what you're talking about, because life is a creative process. Life is this adventure, right? And uh, and it when you were talking about the the loving gaze that you give to your clients, you weren't using that terminology, but you were talking about really listening to them and helping them to hover around um, things that you notice when you're when you're observing. It reminded me so much of a phrase that I heard probably 40 years ago at a conference where the guy was talking about how do you really lovingly listen to someone? And he said, it's a little bit like running your thumb along the edge of their soul and finding where the scars are, you know? And I thought, oh. Wow. (laughs) What an amazing phrase. Yeah. Isn't that that a great picture? That is so true. Mm. Never forgot that. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, you know, how do you lovingly listen to somebody? You know, if I may, I'll mention that with two of my colleagues, um, we have a book that's going to be released in 
two weeks, March 28th. Oh, wow. Marriage, How great. A, a book called the, the Listening Book. The Listening Book. Wow, I like that. And it's for the public. It's not for therapists, although I think therapists will find it quite useful. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Listening Book. Um, boy, I could show you the cover. if. Yeah, and absolutely. That, and, and can you give me a link to it, too, so I can put it in the show notes, and that way people can get yeah. it when it comes out. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send that to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the listening book, Routledge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be you, and, and who are the co-authors? Uh, Robin Tisick, T-I-C-I-C. Um, and Elise Kushner and me, Bruce Ecker. So are are you all part of the coherence? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are all in the Coherence Psychology Institute. Um, If you want, uh, I don't know if you, if you want to, uh, I could show you an image of the cover right now. Oh yeah, let me let me give as you a, as a screen share. Let me give you share screen permission there. <clears throat> okay. All right. There you go. The listening book: How to create a world of rich connections and surprising growth by actually hearing each other. See, this fits right in our little corner, Bruce. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> That's what we're trying to do. It does. It yeah. does. So you know, there are, there are several movements of this going on um, contemporaneously. There's the, the, the million, let's see, what is it called? The million listeners group. And then there is um, braver, braver, um, Oh, I can't think of the name of that group where they're trying to bring together people of differing political opinions to have, um, you know, lucid, friendly conversations and mm-hmm. uh, trying to um, reintegrate the polarization mm. that's going on in the world. And, uh, mm-hmm. and listening is really the key to that, right? Oh, gosh, yes. It's so fundamental. It's so fundamental. And this this book uh, approaches it exactly in that way. Yeah. All right. Let's. I like this. It says, yeah. get ready for a mind and heart opening adventure of discovery. Yeah, it is. Book, it's right? a unique book. It's you know, I'm so happy with how it came out. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely Thanks. terrific, Bruce. I thank you so much for your time. and Thank you for inviting me. And- it's been a pleasure to sit with you like this. Really appreciate it. And uh, there are quite a few people in this little corner who have become interested in studying psychology and psychotherapy and and finding a way to help people. So um, they can, if you send me a link to the Coherent Psychology Institute and and anything else that you'd like in the show notes, I can put that in there. Great. Good. Thanks. People will know how to pursue these ideas. Great. So could you hold on for just a second after I turn off the record? I wanted to ask you something. Sure. Sure. Yeah, thanks. So um, 